This is the Epilog Audio Experience. The language and content on this podcast may be unsuitable for certain audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to History Chatter. In the last two episodes, I'd been talking about the British Secret Services going after historian Eric Hobsbawm on the suspicion that he had been a communist. In this episode, we look at another dimension of a communist state, this time China, but with regard to sports and the changing relationship between America and China around what came to be called ping-pong diplomacy. In April 1971, a series of table tennis matches between the US national team and world champions China made history. In fact, some of you will remember the movie Forrest Gump. Historian Pete Millwood is now working on a history of how visits of athletes and musicians helped re-establish diplomatic relations between China and United States in the 1970s. In that connection, he's had a wonderful new piece on the various dimensions of ping-pong diplomacy. At the time, in 1971, United States ranked 23rd. And the U.S. team was made mostly of uh, amateur players. Some of them even paid their own expenses to travel to World Table Tennis Championship in Japan, where they first met their Chinese counterparts. Clearly, the Chinese team's superiority was indisputable. There were seven events in the championship. The Chinese won four gold medals, three silver medals, and two bronze medals. The Americans did not win anything at all. But soon after the championship, the U.S. team were invited to China for a short tour, where they also had an opportunity to visit the Great Wall. Chinese Premier Zhou Enlai ordered that the Chinese prioritize friendship first and competition second. They apparently threw a handful of the games too. The tour was quickly dubbed ping-pong diplomacy by the American press. It made history for political rather than sporting reasons and consequences. What really changed? After two decades of hostility between the government of the two countries, which was um, really sparked by the Cold War ideology and memories of the Cold War, the diplomacy uh, brokered via table tennis eventually led to visits to China by other more prominent Americans. Uh, It included, for instance, the National Security Advisor Henry Kissinger soon after the tour. And of course, it was followed by the visit of President Nixon less than a year later. Then there were visits by basketball players, physicists, and uh, Philadelphia Orchestra. 
China, in reciprocal uh, gestures, sent uh, a collection of sporting and cultural delegations to the U.S., again starting with uh, the table tennis players. Now, it's often mistaken that the U.S. team's visit to China is it marked the first time Americans had set foot in, in China, really, since 1949, when it was founded as a communist state. That's not quite true. There were Americans in China all along. For instance, Sidney Rittenberg, a former American soldier and communist who was born in South Carolina, was uh, the most prominent and controversial of the foreign friends of China who lived there. He was, of course, um, a left-leaning fellow traveler and received favor from Chairman Mao's government in exchange for their vocal loyalty to the regime. During the Cultural Revolution, um, Rittenberg was one of the most influential individuals at Radio Peking, then China's equivalent of the BBC World Service. He delivered speeches throughout China. His influence soon attracted suspicion, um, including from Chairman Mao's wife. He was accused of being an American spy, and he was later imprisoned for more than a decade. But that's another story. Ping-pong diplomacy is also sometimes referred to as the first time a group of Americans visited the People's Republic of China. That, too, is not quite true. 41 of the 160 young Americans traveled to the Sixth World Festival of Youth and Students held in Moscow in 1957, continued on to China, where Zhou Enlai welcomed them as pioneers in opening the contacts between the people of two countries. Their visit received worldwide attention, not least because the young Americans were knowingly violating a U.S. government ban on all travel to China imposed in 1952. But this travel, of course, did not have any influence on the improvement of diplomatic relations. So what really was happening in 1971? Well, it's often assumed that it was the ping-pong trip itself that restored um, communication between the two governments. In reality, dialogue had continued throughout the Cold War. A series of ambassadorial-level dialogues between China and the U.S. occurred between 55 um, until 70, with about 136 meetings taking place. These talks would, of course, often reach a deadlock. There was this case in 1957, for instance, when President Eisenhower had limited interest in a serious dialogue with Mao. He was uh, concerned that any public initiative towards China would be met with hysteria from anti-communists in the Congress. But by 1971, the situation had changed. Nixon, uh, who had been Eisenhower's vice president, made it clear in a 1967 
foreign affairs article that he did not support anymore a policy of isolating China. Some contact with a country of a billion people had to be restored, he argued. Mao personally approved uh, the invitation of, of U.S. table tennis players. He overruled those in his foreign ministry. And even Zhou Wenlai, who urged caution. Chinese documents reveal that the chairman's decision was not without precedent. Two months earlier, he had ordered that dozens of Americans should be invited to China over the course of 1971. Like Nixon, Mao was also open to diplomatic talks. He sought a rapprochement with the US, partly in order to prevent invasion of China by the Soviet Union. That had appeared an imminent possibility after major Sino-Soviet border clashes in 1969. However, Nixon was far less involved and more cautious in ping-pong diplomacy. The president personally endorsed the State Department, giving the U.S. team permission to travel to China, but only on condition that the U.S. government would have no further involvement in the trip. In Washington, National Security Advisor Kissinger was worried that the amateur table tennis players might muddle his and Nixon's delicate approach to Beijing. They were anxious about the public response to the team's China trip, but both were pleasantly surprised with the overwhelmingly positive reaction of uh, ordinary Americans to the White House's diplomatic gestures to Beijing. Ping-pong diplomacy was certainly not spontaneous, therefore. The Chinese team's attendance at the World Championship in Japan was the first time that country had participated in an international sporting tournament since the beginning of the Cultural Revolution in 1966. Beijing had been divided over whether to send their team to Japan. One reason behind the concern was fear. Chinese officials predicted that the Chinese athletes would face fierce anti-communist protests in Japan. One important moment at the championship, however, did occur by chance, and this probably turned the tide of events. American and Chinese players and officials had already conversed on the sidelines of the games in Japan. Graham Steenhoven, the president of U.S. Table Tennis Association, told his Chinese counterpart, Zhong Zhong, that Nixon had recently canceled the ban on travel to the Chinese Republic violated in 1957 by the youth delegation. But the breakthrough occurred by chance. The US player Glenn Cowan boarded the Chinese team's bus. An awkward silence followed. It was broken by the Chinese team captain, Zhuang Zhedong, 
As they got off the bus, Zhuang presented Cowan with a silkscreen depiction of China's Huanshan Mountains. The gathered photographers could not stop clicking at the time. It was a moment that indeed changed history. Perhaps Zhuang had brought the gift to Japan to give it to an American. Perhaps it was just one of the tokens of the Chinese carried for friendly interaction with rival teams. In any case, the interaction was a surprise to Mao back in China. When he learned of the incident, he commented, and I quote, Zhuang Zhedong is not only very good at ping pong, but also quite diplomatic, unquote. Soon, Mao sent word for Cowan and his teammates to be invited to China. The Americans, however, were not the only team to receive such an invitation. Teams from Colombia, Canada, Nigeria, and the UK were all um, touring China simultaneously in April 1971. Nonetheless, the importance of US-China relations meant that Zhou told his closest aides that the Americans should be China's top priority while in the country. It was um, indeed a positive development that ping pong diplomacy did not end in 1971. Almost exactly a year later, the Chinese team arrived on a reciprocal second leg tour of the US. Though this was not the first time um, the Chinese citizens had visited the US, it was the first official delegation from communist China. The Chinese team played table tennis to 10,000 spectators at the Nassau Coliseum on Long Island and in the austere chambers of the United Nations. They visited Disneyland and Hollywood, as well as an African-American church in Memphis and a car factory in Detroit. Zhuang Zhedong told the Detroit factory workers that the Chinese players salute the American working class and that they had come to learn from, from them. Whereas the Americans had been guests of the Chinese government, the Chinese team were received by two non-governmental organizations in the U.S., the U.S. Table Tennis Association and the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. Nixon, of course, hosted the Chinese athletes at uh, a White House Rose Garden reception. It's been 50 years since then. In April 2021, China used the 50th anniversary of the American team's visit to urge a return to the spirit that characterized the visit. Ping pong diplomacy has become a powerful example of cooperation trumping hostility. The 1971 breakthrough in US-China relations did not happen by chance. We should not hold our breath for another spontaneous ping pong moment. What the story emphasizes really is the way in which good relations between two hostile countries are crafted partly by chance, but mostly by conscious design and sincere effort, along with profound goodwill from both the countries. We'll be coming back uh, 
to a similarly interesting and captivating episode from recent or from a distant event in history in the next episode. Until then, your friend Oniban signs off. Looking forward to seeing you next week.